0: Welcome to all of those of you who are um, uh, joining us online and also those of you who are here at Central Campus and those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in South Calgary, and Bridgeland, and also in Northwest Calgary. Well, as you just saw in the video a moment ago, on the weekend of December 1 and 2, our entire church, including all of our campuses, will be coming together uh, for our Christmas um, Center Street presentation and the the good news of Jesus Christ is going to be clearly communicated on that weekend. And so I want to encourage you to invite someone to come with you. You know, research indicates that uh, when people are personally invited by someone that they've got some relational currency with, uh, the majority will say yes. And so please pray about it and make a choice to reach out to someone, invite them, and not to come alone, but to share the good news of Jesus with others. We have personal invites available for you to use in the information booth, and if you would like an electronic invite, you will find that on our church's website. Okay, we're con- continuing in our series in the book of 1 John. And you may recall that uh, one of the reasons that John wrote this letter was to bring clarity around the issue of sin. In chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, My dear children, I write this to you so that you may not sin. As we learned through our study of chapter 1, um, People in the early church uh, were claiming to be Christ followers and yet they were not following Christ in their behaviors. Uh, They were walking in darkness, they were ignoring the truth of God and going their own way. Some even denied that they had a sin problem at all, while others sought to justify or to rationalize away their sin. So what is sin? Why such a big deal about sin? Well, sin is pursuing something other than God to satisfy the emptiness, kind of that spiritual hole within. It's doing what I want to do rather than what God wants me to do, what God created me to do. Now, make no mistake, we sin because we do get some kind of pleasure from it, even a perverted kind of pleasure in some cases. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep sinning. Hebrews 11.25 says, Sin is pleasurable, but it is fleeting. The fun lasts only for a time before you, hit, you get hit with the cost of sin. Drinking and partying Friday night may be fun, for example, but the cost, the hangover, the headache... The feelings of regret, they come in the morning. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Sin is costly. You may not like the word sin. You may prefer the word mistake or failure or dysfunction. But when you listen to the news, look at what's happening in our world or, or even the life of people that you know, wouldn't you agree that there's just plenty of evidence that when people choose to kind of go their own way and to walk in darkness rather than God's way, they often pay a very dear price. Sin can hurt us physically. It can scar us emotionally. It can destroy or bring major division and hurt in our relationships. And that is why John says here, I'm writing this letter to you so that you will not um, have any confusion about what sin is. Or about how costly it is in life. And therefore, that you will not take sin lightly. And so with that background, would you stand and join me in reading our scripture lesson for today, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Our Heavenly Father, again, our hearts are open to you. Thank you for uh, inspiring John to write these words. And Lord, we want to understand them. And so we just reach out to you and and. Ask that you would teach us, Lord, and that you would uh, help us to, uh, to receive what you would say to us and that you'd give us the courage, Lord, to uh, respond to whatever you call us to do. We pray it all in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. So this past week as I was reflecting on this passage and, and uh, I thought about the, and was really thinking about the Apostle Paul's very direct challenges that he gives here in 1 John, to live uh, a truly authentic Christian life, to take sin seriously. As I, as I looked at this book and thought about people reading it, a thought um, uh, that came to me was a conversation that I had with a young man. Uh, a number of years ago, who said to me, Pastor Henry, I've been a Christian for a year now. And to be honest, I'm struggling a lot with a particular sin. And I often feel that God's disgusted with me and that I'm not a true Christian at all. So here was a very sincere Christian who wasn't trying to deny his sin, as some of the people were in the early church, he wasn't trying to justify or rationalize away his sin. No, he knew he had a sin problem. But when he read passages of Scripture like we find in the book of James or here in 1 John, he wondered whether he was a Christian at all because of his ongoing struggle with sin. Now, if we're honest, all of us struggle with sin in one form or another. I know that I do. Whether it's resentment or gossip, or pride, or envy, or greed, selfish ambition, out of control lust, to name just a few. Even those who are more mature in the faith struggle with a certain sin or sins that steals our affection away from Christ. The Apostle Paul was very transparent about this in his own life. In Romans 7.15, he writes, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And we all say, thanks, Paul. We needed that. We need to know that even a giant of the faith like you, an apostle that God entrusted to write a significant portion of the New Testament, was a man who struggled with sin. But Paul doesn't just identify with our struggle. In Romans 6, 8, uh, chapter 6 right through to 8, he actually points to the answer, how we can be set free. Romans 7, 24, he cries out, who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? And then he says, thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now notice Paul doesn't point us to a procedure. He doesn't point us to a five-step plan or an eight-fold path or anything like that. No, he points us to a person, Jesus Christ. He says, my hope is found in Jesus Christ. Here in 1 John, the Apostle John points to Jesus as well. He writes, my dear children... I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, notice he's acknowledging that sin is a part of life. We are going to struggle with sin as long as we are on this planet. But he says, But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John says, Our freedom from the power of sin and self condemnation. Hinges on Jesus Christ. And in this message, we're going to try to address that. And so, the question that I want to address in the time remaining is really the question that the young man I referred to a moment ago was asking me How can I find freedom from the power of sin and this self condemnation? How can I find freedom through Christ? Well, to answer that question, I want to spend most of our time in Romans 5 up to about uh, Romans 8. Because the Apostle Paul gives a more in-depth response to the issue than the Apostle John does here. So, I'm going to have you turn to Romans chapter 6. Now, in response to the question I asked, first of all, freedom from the power of sin and self-condemnation comes to those who know and embrace their identity in Christ. What you believe about yourself and what you believe about how God sees you will dramatically impact the way you live your life and the way you deal with sin in your life. Now, in reality, there are really only two sources for the development of your identity. One is culture. In other words, what you do, the roles you play... And, of course, what people think of you. And the other is Christ. It's either our culture or it's Christ. Now, basing your identity on your culture or what other people think is problematic because, let's face it, people are fickle and their feelings change. Professional athletes understand this very much so. Make a great play and people will throw a parade for you. Blow it, and they will hound you sometimes for the rest of your life. It's just a really good lead-up to the Stampeders game this afternoon. (laughs) An NHL goalie once lamented how difficult it is being a goalie. He said, imagine how you would feel when every time you make a mistake at work, a blinding red light and an ear-piercing foghorn goes on, and 20,000 people stand up and yell, If you determine your identity by your profession, what happens when you lose your job or when you retire? Who are you then? If you determine your identity by being a parent, what happens when your kids grow up and leave home to establish and lead their own lives? Who are you then? The bottom line is basing your identity On our culture is destined to disappoint the truth is if you're a Christian there's really only one identity one foundation that cannot be taken away from you and it is this you are a child of God you're a child of God yes you might be a child of God who happens to be an accountant or a plumber or a father or an athlete But the core source of your identity is your relationship with God. Now, to appreciate who we are in Christ, it's vital that we first understand who we are as human beings. One of the first things the Bible tells us about ourselves is that we are not just physical bodies and souls, but we are also spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says this, So we fix our eyes... Not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, Dan Stone points out that this verse contains two fundamental truths. One truth talks about things that are seen and temporary. The other truth talks about things that are unseen and eternal. It could be pictured this way. Both realms are real and they coexist. As Christians, we have the privilege of living in both realms. The eternal realm is invisible, it's changeless, it's timeless. It's the realm of spirit and of God's absolutes, it's the realm of ultimate reality, of completeness and wholeness, where things are finished and settled. It is the realm of positional truth or what God says about who I am. It's the realm of justification. The realm, in other words, the realm in which through Christ's death and resurrection, I am set free from the penalty of sin so that I can begin a relationship with God. It's the realm that many people on our planet believe isn't there or at least just simply ignore it. On the other hand the earthly realm is visible and temporary. We call it the natural realm. The Apostle Paul referred to it as this age. It is the realm of creation having a beginning and an end. It is the realm of past, present, and future, birth, life, and death, sowing, growing, and reaping. It's the realm in which we see good and we see evil. It is the realm of sanctification where we are set free from the power of sin justification sets us free from the penalty of sin sanctification sets us free from the power of sin so that we can grow in our relationship with Christ it is the realm where we often say I want to grow in my relationship with Christ whereas the eternal is the realm of I am the earthly realm is the realm of I am becoming Both realms are vitally important to God because he made both of them. Now the problem is, sometimes we get confused about which realm a scripture is speaking to. So look at verse 2 of Romans 6 as an example. It says, we died to sin. And yet many Christians read that and they wonder how that can be true. Because even as the Apostle Paul admitted, sin is alive in them. And the result often is a lot of guilt. False guilt, but it's guilt. The Bible says, when I I became a Christian, I died to sin. And yet I'm struggling with sin big time. So that must mean that I'm not a true Christian. That's kind of the logic that some Christians go through. But we need to understand that when Paul says we died to sin, he's talking about something that took place in the eternal spiritual realm, not in the earthly physical realm where we live. As we're going to see in a moment, we died to sin. We died to the influence of sin in our lives because something profound happened to us. Our spirit It wasn't something that we accomplished at all. It was actually something that Christ accomplished for us in the eternal spiritual realm. Hebrews 10 verse 14 helps us to understand this truth even more clearly. This is what it says. Because by one sacrifice, that's of course referring to Christ's death, Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. At first glance, that verse is confusing, isn't it? I mean, look at it. Because it talks about us being made perfect forever, but at the same time, it talks about that we're being made holy. And yet this verse is actually speaking to both realms. When Jesus died on the cross and then rose again from the grave, something happened in the spiritual realm that has the capacity to not only change each of us but also how God sees us. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says in the spiritual realm, God takes the sin that is on your account and he puts it on Christ's account and he takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and he puts his righteousness on your account it's a great deal great exchange and I say all of that on the basis of 2 Corinthians 5 21 God made him referring to Christ who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness, or a right standing of total acceptability before God, is a gift. You don't work for it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it, and neither do I. Like any gift, all you can do is either accept it or reject it. And once you do, his gift of grace, which Jesus paid the ultimate price for, his gift of grace is yours and mine. Look at Romans 6, verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin not from sinning but from our disposition, our tendency to want to sin this is what this verse is saying before I embraced Christ is my Lord and Savior, I, Henry Shore, phys- was, I was physically alive in the earthly realm but spiritually dead in the spiritual realm, the way that Adam was when he rebelled against God in the garden. Remember, when God first created Adam, he was spiritually alive. He rebelled against God and as a result, he died spiritually. However, when Christ died in my place and your place, when he rose from the grave and we put our trust in him, in the spiritual realm, Paul says in Romans 6, 2, I died to sin. In other words, I died to the influence of sin in my life. I died to the control of the old selfish nature. And I was made spiritually alive with Christ and his resurrection. In other words, I became a new creation, a new person in Christ, living under his authority and his control. Now, I am Henry Shore in Christ. In the spiritual realm, God sees me as forgiven, righteous, and perfect. Not because I live perfectly in the earthly realm, trust me. But because in the eternal realm. I am in Jesus Christ, and he is righteous and perfect. That's how the Apostle John refers to Jesus here in verse 2. He refers to him as the righteous one. Now, here's the thing. Yes, we live in the eternal realm, but we also live in another realm, the earthly realm. And in the earthly realm, we are still being sanctified. In other words, we're still being made holy. We're still growing in the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And that explains why sin is still kicking around in our lives and why we're still tempted to sin. Yes, in the spiritual realm, we died to our old sinful nature, but our sinful nature didn't die. We died to its control in our lives, but it didn't die. The spiritual part of us that has come alive in Christ is no longer under the control, the power of our sinful nature. But our old sinful nature is still alive and resident in our body and in our soul. Still functioning in the same way, uh, with the same old habits and thoughts and actions that we had before we put our trust in Christ. Look over at Romans 7, 22. Where Paul writes about the battle within him. He writes, For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. You see, we still have this earthly sinful nature that fights against the new person that we are in Christ. For example, a few years ago, I switched um, from a computer made by one company to a computer made by another company, the names of which will go unmentioned. Now, even though companies that make computers um, uh, use the same basic alphabetical keyboard, they like to make our lives miserable (laughs) by taking the liberty to move around other key functions wherever they like. You know, like the delete button or the backspace button or page up and down buttons. So when I made this switch from one computer to another, I found it incredibly frustrating getting used to my new computer because instinctively I hit keys that didn't correspond to what I used to do. And so I had to slow down And re-educate myself to the new location of some of these keys. Well, I stuck it out and slowly put to death. (laughs) No, I didn't do that. But slowly put to death the old ways of doing things on my old computer. And over time, my thinking was transformed. Transformed. And my frustration level greatly diminished. Well, so it is in the spiritual realm. It's a struggle to re-educate our earthly nature, our soul, our body. And so we experience many failures. But if we persist and put to death what our Lord says is sinful and destructive, if we actually believe him in that. And instead allow the Holy Spirit to live the new life of Christ through us, we will increasingly experience freedom from the power of sin and the victorious life that Jesus longs for us to have. Now hopefully, this teaching helps you not only to find freedom from the power of sin, but also the fear of condemnation that so often accompanies the times we do sin, when you think that, oh man, I I must not be a Christian. Paul put it this way in Romans 8 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who never sinned. No. Doesn't say that, does it? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the spiritual realm there, the eternal realm. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So let me remind you of what no condemnation means. First of all, it means that God does not reject you or kick you out of his family when you sin. Because remember, in the eternal realm, you are already righteous and acceptable in God's eyes. Not because you're living perfectly on the earthly realm, but because you're in Christ. Secondly, no condemnation means that God's not upset with you when you struggle with sin in your life. You may get angry. You may get frustrated with yourself, even as Paul was upset with himself. But God isn't upset with you. He's patient with you. He's like a loving father watching his little girl taking her first steps. If she stumbles and falls, I mean, he doesn't lose it. A father, a loving father, doesn't lose it. No, a loving father lifts her up, encourages her, and shows her how to do it right. As I've said so many times before, God is far more interested in the direction and the passion of your heart. The real you, then he is about the perfection of your behavior. If your heart direction is right, your attitudes and your behaviors will eventually follow. They'll begin to fall in line. The third thing, no condemnation means, is that God doesn't punish you when you sin. Because remember, in the spiritual realm, You are no longer the object of God's judgment. You're no longer the object of God's wrath. Why do I say that? Because Jesus took all of God's wrath that was directed at you and me, He took all of that and He put it upon Himself on the cross. As His forever child, He no longer relates to you as a judge but as a loving father. Christ paid the sin. He took the wrath on himself. Now having said that, let me give, let me be very clear that Paul is not giving us license to sin. I want you to notice that Paul clearly challenges us, as does the Apostle John in 1 John, not to sin. If you look at Romans 6, 1. All right, let's let's just go there for a minute. This is what he says. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Go down to verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Now what does, you know, what does by no means mean? By no means. That's what it means. You know, folks, sin may not change our position in Christ, in the eternal realm. But it can lead to all kinds of negative consequences in the eternal realm. For example... If you disregard the law of gravity, and you jump off a two-story building, and you break your leg, you are reaping what you have sown. God wants you to honor him and to not sin, not to make your life miserable, but because he wants it to go well with you in this life. Sin hurts us physically and emotionally. It has the capacity to rob us of joy and peace. It can hurt other people, especially those closest to us. I mean, let's face it, where there is gossip and slander, there is the death of friendship. The wages of sin is death. Where there is lust, there is often the death of a marriage. Where there is misguided priorities, there is often the death of a family. Where there is greed, there is often death of a business. Sin is our enemy. Sin has resulted in our greatest regrets. Sin also breaks our fellowship with God. Our relationship with God isn't broken, but our friendship with Him can be as long as we walk in darkness. And furthermore, when you sin and you walk in darkness, you limit God's power in your life. God wants to make a difference through you. But when you're walking in darkness, that ain't gonna happen. John 15 verse 4, Jesus said that if we want to bear fruit, we need to remain in the vine, connected to the vine, we need to stay in fellowship with God. And finally, sin also brings loving discipline from the Lord. In Hebrews 12:6, it says, the Lord disciplines those he loves. No less than a loving parent disciplines a child that he or she loves. When you get off track, when, when you sin and you walk in darkness, God loves you enough to get your attention in some way, in order to bring correction back into your life and back into the light of his truth. Again, he doesn't punish you. And please note the difference. The purpose of punishment is to enact judgment for wrongdoing. That was paid for by Christ on the cross. It's done. The purpose of discipline is to correct and to promote growth, spiritual growth, so that we'll become all that God created us to be. And so first of all, freedom from the power of sin um, and self-condemnation comes to those who know and embrace their identity in Christ. And I say who know and embrace their identity in Christ because knowing who you are in Christ doesn't go far enough. You have to embrace it. You have to put your faith in it. You have to act on it. Look at Romans 6.11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Paul says, count on it to be true. You died to the influence of sin, to the control of sin in your life. You're no longer a slave to sin, but now you're alive in Christ, and you have his power at your disposal. Every day you will experience all kinds of temptations that will make you wonder if you actually died to sin. But God says, don't you doubt me on this. A transformation has occurred in your life in the spiritual realm. So don't act on the basis of your feelings. Rather act on the basis of your faith. Knowing that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. That sin is no longer your master. And therefore you don't need to give in to temptation and sin. And then secondly. Freedom from the power of sin and self-condemnation. Comes to those who offer themselves to God. Doesn't just come to those who know and embrace their identity in Christ, but also those who offer themselves to God. Look at Romans 6.12. Do not offer any part of, of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, But rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you are not under law, but under grace. As someone who has come alive in Jesus Christ, as someone who is totally forgiven and accepted by the Lord in the spiritual realm, you and me now have a choice. We can present or offer ourselves to Christ to live his life through us, or we can present ourselves to the temptations and lusts that are still kicking around in our body. Christ wants to live his life through us, but we have to offer or we have to surrender our minds, our emotions, our wills, and our bodies to him. He won't force himself on us. He's a gentleman. Paul writes in verse 13, Do not offer parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. Now, I want you to notice on that verse, I don't know if you can put it back up, that Paul personifies sin. He's talking about sin like it's a separate entity, almost like another person. And so I'm going to refer to sin as Mr. Sin, all right, just to help us understand more completely the point that Paul's making us here. And really, Mr. Sin is the old nature. All right? It's the old nature. It's that selfish nature. You see, the desire to do wrong isn't really you. That is your earthly nature, your old nature, Mr. Sin, calling out to you. The real you, the spirit you that's in Christ doesn't want to sin. So often we think that there's two of us inside. There's the good me that wants to do good and there's the bad me that wants to do bad. But the truth is, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, there's only one of you, the spirit you, that is in Christ. And the real you, the spirit you, will either offer yourself to the life and the desires of Jesus Christ or to the temptations of your mortal body and soul. Paul's saying, I'm telling you, you are dead to sin and alive with Christ. It's not you against God. No, it's you and Christ against your sinful nature, Mr. Sin. For the Christian, when temptation comes your way, the one who says, I don't want to do this, is the real you, if you're a Christ follower. While the one who says, I want to do this, is Mr. Sin your earthly, fleshly nature. Now, I can't emphasize enough why it's important that we get this. Because when we're tempted, if we believe that our desire to sin is the real us, rather than our earthly nature, we're going to conclude that there must be something wrong with us, with our heart. There's something wrong with my devotion to God. And we will condemn ourselves saying to ourselves that God must be disappointed in us. We'll even question whether we're Christians. And Satan will use all of that to discourage us from living in victory over sin and just to encourage us to keep sinning. Mr. Sin says, well, since you feel you haven't changed, you know, you might as well continue sinning since you're, um, uh, you're, you know, He he won't talk to you about who you are in Christ. No, no. He will call you by the, the, the thing that you're doing. He'll say you're an angry person. And since you're an angry person, you might as well keep expressing your anger. He will define you by your sin. He'll say you're a lustful person. And so you might as well keep feeding that lust. And Mr. Sin convinces you that these sinful thoughts are you. And God says, that's a lie. It isn't you. You're a brand new person. And yes, you will be tempted again and again, but you do not have to present members of your body to Mr. Sin, your fleshly nature. Again in verse 13, he challenges us. Do not offer your parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Now, what does that look like practically? Well, here's how it plays out. Let's say that your spouse asks you to pick up something on the way home from work. And when you walk in the house, you realize you forgot it. And it was a big deal for your spouse. And she's upset. And she says some unkind things to you. In that moment, your sinful nature, Mr. Sin, will say to you, excuse me, but could I borrow your mouth for just a few seconds? And based on how you're feeling, you say, you bet. After what she just said to me, you can borrow my mouth for an hour. And Mr. Sin goes wah, 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 wah. And after it's all done and your wife wipes off the spit and everything else, Mr. Sin says to her, can I borrow your mouth again? And she says, after what he just said to me, you sure can. And Sin goes yada, 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 yada. And then Mr. Sin asks your teenage son, who's been listening into all of this, can I borrow your mouth? And he goes, yep, 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 yep. And things begin to escalate more and more. And in the end, you're not talking to each other. You're angry at each other. And Mr. Sin says, thank you so much. My work is done here. Have a rotten rest of your evening. Or you're at the airport in some foreign country. You walk by one of those magazine huts, and Mr. Sin says, "Um, can I borrow your eyes for just a moment? In fact, he might even be so bold as to ask, can I borrow your eyes for this entire trip? And then you get home, and you find yourself saying, oh my goodness, I shouldn't have. I wish I hadn't. I wish, I wish. I wish. Who is this I wish person? Paul says here, I'm telling you. The I wish I didn't is the new you in Jesus Christ. Friend, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There was a time when you were dead to God and sin was your master. Oh, yes, of course, you did some good things. But most of the time, <coughs> when Mr. Sin said jump, you said how high. And now you are in Christ. You will still feel the lure of temptation because Mr. Sin is still a part of your body. But your spirit is now in Christ, and therefore you have the freedom and the power. And the opportunity to say no to sin and yes to God. Now, of course, the spiritual life is not instantaneous perfection. Ephesians 4.17, Paul talks about being a process of constantly putting off and putting on. Ending the old habits, however, is not enough unless we replace them with new habits, we will not make lasting progress. It's not enough to put off looking at pornography unless we also put on a weekly a covenant group, perhaps, where we're praying and we're reading Scripture and we're being honest and transparent about our struggle. If we don't, we'll be ever so tempted to offer members of our body back to looking at the same magazines and the same websites. It's not enough to put off selfishness unless we put on serving others in some way. Spiritual transformation is a long-term process. It won't happen overnight. But because Christ is alive in you, it will happen step by step as he empowers you and as you are set free from self-condemnation and as you surrender your life to his control each and every day and honor him by living the godly life that he calls you to live. I'll close with this. Bob George says that the human soul is like a wonderfully built grand piano, a magnificent instrument. However, the quality of the music that comes from it is totally dependent on who is at the keys. If a master concert pianist is at the keys, you'll be carried along with the rapture of beautiful music. But let a gorilla have a shot at that piano, and the result will not only be chaotic music, but actual damage to the instrument. That is... Our daily choice. Will you present yourself to Christ? The master pianist who will produce the beautiful music of his life in and through you? Or will you present members of your body to Mr. Sin, to your selfish nature with the discord and the destruction that it produces? Years ago in my teens, I struggle a lot with insecurity and a low self-image. I didn't like the way I looked. I didn't feel I had really anything worthwhile to offer in life. I despised who I was, or at least so I thought. For you see, one day, through the help of a mentor friend, I realized that even though I thought I hated myself, I realized my real problem was that I loved myself too much. Even though I felt very lowly of myself, the focus was still on me. It was pride. And the essence of pride is sin. I soon realized that I didn't need a good self-image. I needed a proper self-image. One that's based not on what I think of me or what other people think of me, but one that's based on what God thinks of me and so one day I opened up my heart and my hands to God really out of desperation and I said Lord here I am the good, the bad, the ugly I'm surrendering my life to you I'm taking the focus off of me I'm putting it on you Now, yes, I've had to do that again and again. But every time I offer my life to Christ, I love what he does in me, and I'm so surprised by what he chooses to do through me. And so will you when you yield your life totally to him. I ask you, who's at the control of your life today? Again, Paul says, don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. May it be so for each of us, to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you please stand for closing prayer? Let's just open our hands to the Lord again and say, Lord, what are you, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what are you asking me to do about it? Father, we just thank you for the reminder that not only do you love us, but you have our best interest at heart in all things. You're not a vindictive God who's out to spoil our fun. You want it to go well with us. And yes, you want to be our friend. I just pray, Lord, for everyone here that they will remember that when they put their trust in you, their identity is no longer based upon their sin. Their identity is based upon who they are in you. And Lord, out of that truth, Lord, would you help all of us, Lord, to give members of our body over to you for acts of righteousness For we pray it all in Jesus precious name and now may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace in the name of God the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit amen thanks for listening we hope this message has impacted you